My name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. So this morning, moms, and not just moms, but all of us, I want to encourage us today. I want to encourage you. I want to encourage us. And, um, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to use the life of a mother in the Bible to do so. And the mother I'm going to use is Mary. I'm going to use the mother of Jesus as a, an encouragement uh, for us. So we're going to look at her life. I'm going to kind of do like I do maybe a lot of times in another setting. I'm going to walk us through what we know of Mary's life. Believe it or not, it's not... There's not all that much to share with you, but there is some. And some of the things I'm going to share with you aren't necessarily written in the Bible, but they're just going to be deduced from, from what we would know from history from that time when Mary, when Mary lived. So Mary, the mother who would carry Jesus in her womb, nurture him as he developed from a zygote. Have you ever thought about that? Jesus was once a zygote. A zygote is a fertilized egg. It's, it's right at the very beginning. And then he, he became an embryo in his mother's womb, and Mary carried him. And from embryo, he became a fetus, and eventually he became a child that was born. By the way, the only difference between a zygote and an embryo and a fetus and a child is a stage of development. That's the only difference. And so Mary, who, had the, who was given the privilege of this, of carrying Jesus in all of those stages of gestation in her womb, this woman was most likely born in Nazareth. And she lived during the reign of Herod the Great. Herod the Great ruled from 37 to 4 BC. He was a terribly wicked, wicked man. We're not going to talk about him much, but he does come to play in this. Historians say that as a typical woman, young woman at that time, she would have probably married around the age of 13, anywhere between 13 and 16. And and women married that young because they wanted to maximize their childbearing days, and they also wanted to guarantee as best they could virginity. And so Mary may have been born around 20 BC, somewhere 20, 18 BC, somewhere in that neighborhood. It's interesting, isn't it, that she would bear a child who then all of history would be divided based on his birth. Kind of neat, isn't it? Uh, She most likely spoke Aramaic with a Galilean accent. And the reason I say that is because um, when Peter speaks in Matthew chapter 26, verse 73, they say, oh, you must be Galilean because of your accent. And that's where Mary was from. So most likely she spoke Aramaic with with an accent. She probably was multilingual, bilingual at least, I would assume, but multilingual maybe. Greek was the trade language at the time, so she would have spoke Aramaic and she would have spoke Greek. And Hebrew was the language of, the, of religious life for the Jews, so she probably would have spoke Hebrew as well. You know, we as Americans, mainly we're just one language people, but around the world it's not that way. Around the world, many people speak many languages, not because they just love to speak languages. It's just a necessity because so many languages are spoken where uh, they live. 
She would have been part of the peasantry, meaning that her family was probably in that trades, in that trades group of people. They were some of the most burdened by the taxes of the day. They would have been, they would have been taxed by three different groups of people, by Rome, by Herod, uh, and then by the temple uh, tax as well. But she was most likely of that trades, peasantry group, uh, grouping of people in her day. The typical home of her time would have consisted of three or four homes, all kind of lumped together. They would have, the, the, each home would have consisted of maybe one bedroom or two bedrooms. There would have been a courtyard kind of surrounding all of them. In the courtyard probably was a, a cistern for water. They might have had a... Uh, a grinding stone for a millstone for grinding gray, grain, and they probably would have had an area within their courtyard where their livestock may have been kept. And Mary's job as a young woman during this time would probably have been household chores, and she may have had a lot of hard work to do as well, the, the strenuous part because she was so young. Mary most likely was illiterate. She probably could not read because that would have been true for most women in that in that, in that culture at that time, women were not trained, and so most likely she couldn't read. And it, and it was also a very orally transmitted, uh, where information was transmitted orally more than any other way. So there's a pretty good chance that she, she never could read. We're introduced to Mary for the very first time in our Bibles in Luke chapter 1. This is what we read. It says, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, to a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. That's our first introduction to Mary. We find her engaged to a man named Joseph. Most likely, this marriage was a prearranged marriage, not that she and Joseph fell in love. Now, I'm going to suggest, I'm going to tell you that I think that there was an emotional love between Joseph and Mary, and I'll tell you why in a few minutes. But most likely, this is an arranged marriage where Mary is engaged to Joseph at the time that we just read. We'll find out later that Joseph is a carpenter, so he's of that trades group of people. And their, their engagement in culture that day is different than our engagement today. Our engagement today, a guy and a gal decide they want to get married and they say they're engaged. And, you know, if, if they haven't sent out wedding invitations already, then they, they break their engagement off and that's just it, you know, that sort of thing. They don't do anything else with it. They just break their engagement. But in this day, they're considered at some level married. And so if you're engaged, that means that Joseph has paid the dowry down on his wife. And so if they break the engagement, they have to do it through a divorce. We learn that Mary is a virgin. She's not had any physical sexual relationship with Joseph. In verse 30, we read this. Then the angel told her, I'm in Luke chapter 1. The angel told her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? She's, she's a virgin. She has not only had not had sex with Joseph, she's, she's not had any sexual relationship. The, the angel replied to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. 
So we learn a little bit more about Mary. Again, not much. We learn some. She's favored by God. Now, what does that mean? I mean, I don't really know what it means that she's favored by God, but, but here's what I think it means. I think it means that she was a woman that pleased the Lord. Now, how do we please the Lord? The Bible tells us that there's only one way to please the Lord. Anybody know what it is? By faith, right? It's the only way to please the Lord, by faith. So I would suggest to you that she found favor in the Lord because Mary was a woman of faith, that Mary was a woman of faithfulness, that she loved God, loved God, believed in God, and she followed after God. At this counter, or after this encounter with Gabriel, Mary will become pregnant in a supernatural way. God will conceive Jesus in her womb. In a normal way of conception, a man's sperm will join with the egg. In this particular case, whatever sperm joined with Mary's egg was, was brought about by God, which made Jesus different than every other man. Right, because in, in, in fact, the angel says, because God will do this, this man, this, this young boy, this child that will be formed in you will be called the son, uh, the son of God. In Matthew's account, not in Luke's account, but in Matthew's account, we, we find out about how, what happens to Joseph with this, right? He discovers, in Matthew chapter 1, he discovers that Mary is pregnant. Now, I did the math this week. I, I, I took the accounts and I looked at the math. Here's the deal. Joseph didn't find out because Mary is showing. Okay, you get that? He doesn't, find, he doesn't discover that Mary is pregnant because Mary is showing. Because as soon as she finds out, she goes to... Um, her, her cousin Elizabeth and stays for three months and she comes back and, and Jesus is six months older than, uh, excuse me, younger than John. So therefore she left right when she finds out that she's pregnant. So Joseph doesn't find out, doesn't discover she's pregnant because she's showing. There's only one way that Joseph discovers that she's pregnant. You all know what that is, right? It's that Mary tells him, Mary tells him, I'm expecting now, Joseph's upset about this. And so that tells me a couple of things. Number one, he believes her that she's pregnant, but he's really not convinced that she's pregnant by the work of God and not by uh, another man. So he's, he's, he's really concerned about this. And, um, and he decides to put her away Quietly, And this is why I want to say to you that I think Joseph had some affection for Mary. Because he, I mean, here's a man who's about to be shamed by a woman who's had relationships with someone else, who's pregnant by someone else while they're engaged. And he knows all this, right? And so he can shame her. He can defend his reputation and he can come out and divorce her publicly and, and make sure everybody knows I didn't do this. But that's not, what he, he's gonna, that's not his plan. His plan is to put her away privately. His plan is to divorce her in such a way that, that I guess it sounds like nobody would, uh, would know. So that kind of tells me that, that Joseph had some affection for Mary. He's, he's willing to, I mean, he's hurt. He's shamed because he doesn't really, he's not really convinced Mary's telling him the truth about this. And, um, but, you know, he's, he's willing to put her away privately. Now that night, God comes to, uh, to Joseph. And he tells Joseph in a dream, and Mary sent, he sent Gabriel, 
I'm assuming that Mary's encounter with Gabriel was different than Joseph's. Joseph's in a dream, uh, but he encounters Gabriel, and when he does, he, he wakes up from that dream, or he wakes up from that encounter with God, and he doesn't hesitate. And it says that he marries Mary, he takes her into his house. So immediately, he, he, marries, he marries her. Now, Mary is at this point, is going to leave Nazareth, and she is going to go to her cousin Elizabeth's house, and she's going to be there for the next three months, and she's going to be there until John is born. My guess is she's actually going to help Elizabeth. My guess is she's going, she's going there because she goes to help him, help her, and she's going to be there through, through the birth. Luke's account records something that Mary, when she gets there, most of us know the story, but when she gets to see Elizabeth, the first thing that happens for Elizabeth is the baby that's growing in her womb leaps. And she has this, she makes this statement, blessed is the, how she knows, I don't know, but she knows. And she says, blessed is the mother of my Lord. Blessed is the mother of the Messiah. And that's you. And she's not showing. She's just found out she's pregnant. And yet the baby in her womb leaps and she knows this. And then Mary makes this, has this song of praise. I want to read it to you. It's going to be Luke chapter 1, verse 46. Mary says this, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my savior, because he has looked with favor on the humble condition of his servant. Truly from now on, all generations will call me blessed because the mighty one has done great things for me and his name is holy. His mercy is from generation to those who fear him. He has done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. He has toppled the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has satisfied the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering his mercy to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he spoke to our ancestors. Now I included that. I'm not going to try to dissect everything that Mary says there, but I included it because I wanted you to hear Mary's words. That's Mary's praise to, uh, to God, you know, because of what's happened. And there's two things that I do want you to, to realize that Mary understands at this point. She understands first the implications of what's happening to her, that she's going to be the mother of the Messiah. She does understand that. She gets that. Of course, that's what the angels told her. And she, she gets that and she believes that. And uh, she realized that because of that choice that God made of her, by the way, as far as we're concerned, really an unconditional choice other than the fact that she has found favor with God. So she is a faithful woman. Other than that, we don't know why God chose Mary, but he chose Mary. And she says she recognized because I'm the mother of the Messiah, I'm going to be blessed. And then the second thing she realizes is that this is the fulfillment of what God has promised Israel for generations, for years and years and years. And she realizes God is doing it. God is actually bringing this king, this Messiah. He's bringing him. And so she says, God has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Now, I'm not trying to imply that Mary understood hardly anything. I, I don't know that she did understand much at all about what was happening, what was going to un- happen, but she understood that this is a blessing to Israel. So Mary goes back to Nazareth after John is born, and she and her husband live as husband and wife. Joseph lives with her. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, we read, He, Joseph, married her, but did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. 
So though Joseph and Mary lived together for the next six months as husband and wife, and it could be that there could be that the engagement time had actually come to an end. That was why they moved in, why they why he did the marriage ceremony, took her into his home or whatever. But here it tells us that they considered whatever was happening to Mary too sacred to touch. And so they they abstained from any kind of physical consummation of their marriage. Now, six, six months later, uh, about the time Jesus is born or, or is due, they get this, this command that they have to go back to their home of origin to register for a census. And so Joseph and Mary make their trek back to Bethlehem. And it seems that both Joseph and Mary were probably descendants of David, but it's through Joseph that they have to go back. So they go back. It's a 90-mile trip, four or five days walking, and she's just about due. We all know the story well. Uh, they make it to Bethlehem, and while they're there, Mary goes into labor. They can't find a guest room, whether that's in an inn or whether that's in their, their, their relative's home. They can't find a guest room, so they end up, it seems like, camping out in a stable area, which if you followed me earlier when I talked about homes, how there was a courtyard and there was usually a, a stable area within the courtyard for the families that lived there. It could have been in that area, but when Jesus is born, uh, there is a feeding trough that's used as a cradle to cradle Jesus. It's either that night or maybe while they're still staying in that stable area, shepherds come and they worship the newborn king having been sent there by, by angels. And what we read about Mary in all of that is that, you remember what happens, right? What she does. She, anybody? Treasures all these things in her heart and meditates on them. That's uh, Luke 2.19. So can you imagine you're pregnant and you're pregnant because God has done something to you that is not natural and, and Joseph's had a, a crazy dream and he's taken you and, and all and, and, and then nothing for the next six months. It's just normal life. It's just normal life. And then now this happens and you, you, you're carrying the son of God. You can't even find a place to have the birth in a, in a good place. You can't even find a place. And, but then this happens that God sends these shepherds out of the blue in the middle of the night to come and, and worship this, this king. Eight days later, they go into the temple to fulfill the covenant law requirements. They carry Jesus in to get him circumcised. And uh, they, they take two pigeon doves, it tells us. And that tells us something about Joseph and Mary. It tells us that they didn't have a lot of resources. The, the actual requirement was a lamb and a pigeon. But if you couldn't afford a lamb and a pigeon, you brought two pigeons. Joseph and Mary brought two pigeons, which says that they didn't have a lot of resources. On this day, while they're in the temple, they meet Simon. Simon's been in the temple. He's an old man. He's a godly man. And God had shown him and told him in some way, you're not going to die until you see Messiah. He comes up to their child and says, I can now die because I've seen the Messiah, right? A little bit later, they run into Anna, 84 years old, always in the temple. She's a prophetess, and she's always prophesying in the temple. They run into Anna, and Anna says to them, oh, the Messiah, the one who's going to redeem Israel. And though it doesn't say this to us, it doesn't say this to us, I guarantee you Mary is treasuring all these things in her heart. They go, they're still in Bethlehem. Whether they're in the stable or whether they found a guest room, we don't know. They're still in, in Bethlehem. I, I think it's, it's shortly after Jesus is born. This would be my, that's an anecdotal guess uh, or just a, a speculative guess. But uh, while they're there, magi from the east come. And they come and they 
bow down before this, these mighty, these, these, um, they're not kings, they're, they're magi, they're like uh, smart men. What's another word women are trying to say? They're, uh, say, help me out. They're, they're learned men, they're, they're probably very rich men, they're, they're the guys that advise the king, and they come in and they bring these expensive gifts for Jesus, and then they bow down before this child and they, uh, and they, and they worship him. And again, Mary's holding Jesus and she's watching this, she's treasuring all this in her heart. Immediately they're warned to leave that Herod the Great is going to try to kill Jesus. So they leave and they go, they go to Egypt for until, until he dies. He dies 4 BC or 1 BC. So soon after that, we can surmise that they return back to Nazareth, where they're going to live in obscurity for the next 30 years. Jesus will live in obscurity. Mary and Joseph will live in obscurity, just making furniture for the next 30 years until Jesus steps out of that obscurity and into history. The next time we see Mary, Jesus has already left the, the carpentry business, and now he's an itinerant, he's itinerant rabbi, gathering people to follow him. And, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I skipped one thing. So 12 years go by, and, and I'm sorry, I skipped this. It's 12 years go by, and then we find Mary again. This time, they're taking Jesus to, to Jerusalem for the Passover. Remember this? And they lose Jesus. And uh, they lose him because they think he's with extended family, which says that there's a lot of people that were involved in raising Jesus, I'm sure. But anyway, they lose him. And um, she, during this time, what's she been doing during those 12 years? We don't know, although we do know that she'll have other children. So she's been raising children for the last, the last 12 years. She's had at least four sons and some daughters. Uh, during this time, Matthew 13:55 and Mark 6:3 tell us that at least four of her brothers uh, of Jesus' brothers' names. She's had four sons: James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And he's had other sisters that remained unnamed. You, you probably know that between Catholicism and Protestantism, there's a divide here, right? In Catholicism, they uh, maintain that G that Mary never had any relations, never had physical relations with Joseph. She remained a perpetual virgin her entire life. I used to think that that came by papal decree, that a pope just decided that at some point. But that's not true. You know where it comes from? It comes from the Proto-Evangelium of James, translated the first gospel of James, which was a book that was written in 150 AD. That's where this comes from. The church basically decided that the book was fraudulent, including, including the Catholicism. They, they, they believe the book is fraudulent. Nobody believes the book is true. But what the book writes about is Mary. All the stuff that I'm not able to tell you right now about who Mary's parents were, how Joseph and Mary met, the first gospel of James tells us all of that. I don't want to muddy the waters. I won't. I won't muddy the waters. But anyway, so it, it makes all kinds of claims. But the church rejected those, that book as being fraudulent. However, Catholicism said, or Orthodox Christianity said, that it was based on a tradition that was true. That, that Mary and Joseph never consummated their marriage physically. And that the children in the Bible are, jo uh, are Joseph's children from a previous marriage. And he was a widower. The Council of Ephesus in 431 declared that to be an orthodox position, and Pope Martin, uh, with papal authority and Catholicism in 649, said that's, that's the way it was. However, those of us that are Protestants, those of us who have 
rejected what divides us from Catholicism. We believe that the Bible is our authority, and so therefore we hold to a different position, and that is that Mary had uh, at least four sons and daughters, James, Joseph, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, because the Bible tells us that they were her, uh, her sons. Uh, when they went to Passover, Mary, they lose Jesus. He's, he's in the temple teaching. You'll remember this. Mary thinks that Jesus, Jesus has been disrespectful to them. She says, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. And Jesus didn't agree that he had been disrespectful. He said to her, Mary, or he said to mother, you should have known where I would be, that I was in the temple. That'd be in the temple teaching or with my father, about my father's business. And indeed she was, I mean, he was at that point, you remember at 12 years old, teaching in the temple in such a way that all the Pharisees were astounded and everybody was listening to this 12-year-old boy teach. Now, that's all we know about Mary. Mary. The next time we know her, we see her in the ministry of Jesus. And I jumped to this, sorry. But in, in, we find her again. Jesus has already gathered his disciples. He goes to a wedding of the family. And when he gets there, he finds out that they've run out of wine. Mary tells him this. And Mary says to him, I need you to take care of this. And you remember Jesus said, I think he says, woman, <laughs> it's not my time. It's not my time yet. It's not my time to start doing miracles yet. And uh, you just got to love this. She pushes back and she says, hey, just do whatever he tells you to do. And uh, you know, I, I just like that, right? I mean, he's the son of God. We believe he's the creator become one of us, right? And yet Mary says, yeah, that's not good enough, you know. Do whatever he says. And of course, you know the story. Jesus turns the water into wine and does his very first uh, miracle. We don't find Mary very much at all during the ministry of Jesus. We find her somewhere in the middle one more time. And this time we find Mary and her sons coming to get Jesus, coming to talk to Jesus. And in the commentary that's given to us, and I didn't write it down, I apologize which gospel it's in, but in the commentary it says, because they think he's out of his mind. They're coming to get Jesus because they think he's out of his mind. Now, all I can say to that is, the they does not include Mary. I, I want y'all to hear me that. I don't believe that they think he's out of his mind includes Mary. I think it's his brothers. Let me tell you why I think it's his brothers, because they don't believe they don't believe. I mean, did you, could you believe that Jonathan is the, the son of God, right? I mean, it'd be really hard to believe that, having grown up with him. I'm sure it was very hard for James and Judas and all of them to believe that Jesus was the son of God. I see Reese laughing. No way Will could be the son of God, right? So, uh, so, so we get it, right? They don't believe. But, but I'm telling you guys, I just don't believe it's true of Mary. I don't believe Mary thought Jesus was out of her mind. And I say that because just shortly before that, she's not willing to take no for an answer from Jesus with the wine, and she believes that Jesus can take care of that, so I don't think it includes Mary. We find Mary yet again in the life of Jesus one more time, mentioned in the Bible, and uh, she's standing uh, at his cross. John's gospel records this, standing by the cross of Jesus was his mother, standing there watching her son nailed to the cross and die. She was the virgin woman that God had conceived this child in, in her, and she's now watching Jesus die. She probably would have been less than 50 years old, and she was the only person on earth who was there both for the birth of Jesus and the death of Jesus. 
It's always troubled me that while this is going on, while she's standing there, Jesus looks down from the cross and he says to John the Apostle, the only one of his apostles that is there, he says, John, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. That's always bothered me. Why did, why did Jesus say that to, to John? And as I was contemplating on that this week, here's a thought that I had, and, and, and I think maybe this might explain it. Maybe because James and, and Judas and Joseph and Simon was the other one, I think. Maybe because those people have rejected Jesus. Maybe they had rejected their mom in a way. Maybe they thought their mom was crazy like their brother. And maybe they weren't involved in their mother's life at that point. And so maybe that's why Jesus said to John, behold your mom. Because at that point, his brothers aren't involved in his mother's life. Or they definitely have rejected Jesus at that point. Seems plausible to me. And then we find her one more time in the Bible. And this time is after the resurrection. And she's gathered with the disciples, huddled in the upper room waiting for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So in Acts chapter 1, verse 13, we read, they arrived in Jerusalem, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying, and then names the apostles, Peter, John, James, Andrew, etc. They were all continually united in prayer along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, (laughs) and his brothers. And his brothers. I guess Jesus' brothers no longer thought he was crazy. And James would go on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And James and Judas would both have books that would be included in our, in our Bible. So uh, they, did no long, they no longer believed that Jesus was crazy. They believed in the resurrection. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. So after Pentecost, Mary disappears from history. The rest of her life is shrouded in legend. We don't know anything about her. I mean, very, very little even remains at all. Elizabeth Johnson made this, uh, made this point about uh, an active imagination with regard to Mary, and I'm going to quote her. She says, What memories and hopes and strategies did she share with the men and the women of the new spirit-filled Jerusalem community? Did she live on peacefully in Jerusalem as an old woman, revered as the mother of the Messiah? Was she quiet or was she outspoken? Did others come to her for advice? Did she express her views about the inclusion of the Gentiles? You ever thought about these things? We don't know. It would seem that she died as a member of the Jerusalem community, though a later tradition portrays her as moving to Ephesus in the company of the Apostle John. And that tradition arises from the fact that John would eventually die in Ephesus. And so people assuming that Mary would have stayed with John, that she also would have died in Ephesus. But there, there's, no, there's no real evidence of that. And so I'd like to personally believe that James and Judas and Simon and Joseph, I'd, I'd, I'd like to believe they stepped up and took their own mom back in and cared for their mom. That's what I'd like to, to think happened. And, and that's what I'm going to say happened. They took care of Mary. So everybody, that's the life story of the mother of Jesus. And that's what we know. So what I'd like to do for the next few minutes is just end, and I'd like to take Mary's life as a a template, if you would, for three challenges to us today. And I'm going to direct these towards you moms, because it is Mother's Day. But even as I say that, I mean, these are going to be challenges for every one of you guys in here. And these are going to be challenges for all you women that are not mothers. You're too young to be mothers. This is a challenge for you young people. This This is for me. This is for all of us. Here's my first challenge. 
Loving, this is from Mary's life. Loving God means being faithful to him. Now, I don't know this for a fact. I've made the statement that I think when it says that Mary found favor in the sight of God, that she found favor because Mary was filled with faith and was faithful to God. In other words, if I take Hebrews 11 as categorical and true, that without faith you can't please God, then it seems only reasonable to me that the reason why Mary would have been chosen would have been at least in part because of her faith. But here's the thing I want you to note about Mary. The angel tells Mary all that God's going to do. And if Mary's, if Mary's thinking, and I, I'm assuming she is thinking because she says, how is this going to be? Because I've not had any relationships with any man. How is this going to be? She's understanding the ramifications of that. She says to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled. And the angel left her. In other words, Mary's, Mary's response to the angel was, here I am. Complete submission. Whatever the cost, I'm willing. Hey, do to me. May I be what you've just said. I'm glad to take on that responsibility. Submission to God. Submission to God. Here's my point. Remember this. Loving God means being faithful to him. Loving God means being submitted to him. Loving God means following his will for our life. Was she nervous? What do you think? I think she would have been. Was she unsure of her abilities? Can you imagine? She's, if she was as young as some women were in that day, 13, let's, give her, let's make her 15 or 16. Can, can, you, can you imagine how I mean, I'd be anxious about my abilities. Can, can I do this, you know? Would she be anxious about what the future would hold for her? I'm sure. You know, is she, is she wondering, you know, is, is, is Joseph going to accept me? Mm. So there's all kinds of things probably going through her mind. Was she afraid? I don't know. But she says, Lord, I'm willing. Uh, I'm obedient. So brothers and sisters, Mary, this teenage girl, most likely, she chose faithfulness. And so here's my challenge to you moms. If you love God, then be faithful to God. Be like Mary. If you love God, be submissive to God. If you love God, do what you know God wants you to do. Step up and say, God, here I am. And it's not just for us mothers, young people. All you young people, can I say this to you? If you love God, then be like Mary. Step up and say, Lord, here I am. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll be faithful to you. I love you. I want to walk in faith. I am the Lord's servant. Hey, men, is there any area in your life where you're not being faithful to God? And this is the time for you to repent. This is the time for you to say, I want to be like Mary, and I want to be faithful. And here's the second challenge for Mary's life. Obedience requires sacrifice, often. Maybe not always, but obedience often requires sacrifice. And I think we all know this, but, but let me just say it again. Following Jesus isn't always easy. Following Jesus isn't always pain-free. And I'm not, I'm, following Jesus doesn't keep us from death. It doesn't keep us from sorrow. It doesn't keep us from losing our job or getting sick or any of those things. So following Jesus isn't pain-free in that way. But listen to this. Following Jesus isn't even pain-free in what it may cost you for following Jesus. In other words, you may have to pay more because you are a follower of Jesus than if you're not a follower of Jesus. When Mary said yes to God, she was saying yes to public scorn. 
Because even if they believed Joseph had done it, I mean, it was just not culturally accepted. Let's go back to the 1930s, 40s, or 50s. You know, if a woman became pregnant outside of, of marriage, I mean, there was great public shame on that. That would have been true for, um, for Mary. She was not knowing whether Joseph would accept her or not. She said, yes, hey, be it done to me, whatever God you want to do. But she doesn't know whether Joseph, she doesn't, I don't, it doesn't say that the angel says, oh, by the way, I'm going to go make sure Joseph gets on board with this too. There's not that, right? Now the angel is going to make sure that Joseph's on board with this, but she doesn't know that. And she's saying yes to a lot of potential pain. And here's what I'm challenging you to, moms, dads, all of us, be willing to say, God, though you slay me, I will follow you. I will love you. You know, the circumstances of my life aren't going to dissuade me from following after you. So Mary ponders all these things in her heart. And that, that happens. Where does that happen? Does that happen? Was that when the, the shepherds came? It wasn't the shepherds came, wasn't it, that she pondered all these things in her heart? So just a few days later, like eight days later, or less than eight days later, later maybe, she's in Jerusalem and Simeon says to her, this, this child is born for the rise and fall. I can't remember exactly how he says it. But you remember he looked at Mary. You remember what he said to Mary? And he said, and a sword is going to pierce your heart. Okay. Now she's already said yes to God. And she's already delivered the son of God. But, but a sword was going to pierce her heart out of her obedience to God. Now, I didn't watch Shep die. I learned of his death. And I thought of his death often. I thought of what it might have been to be there, you know, to hold him as, as he died. But regardless, it hurt so much, not even being there. Just, it just hurt so much to know he died. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. All of us can't imagine. What it was like for Mary to stand there and not just watch her son die. But to watch her son die the way Jesus died. And here's my thought. And you, 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 you see what you think. I wonder if when Simeon said, and a sword will pierce your heart. I wonder if when the soldier pierced the side of Jesus. If Mary, if her heart wasn't pierced. I mean literally. I don't mean literally as in. I mean, literally with pain. You know, what, what do you call it uh, when you women are giving birth and us men are feeling the labor pains? What's that called? Sympathy pains? I thought there was another word for it. I just want you all to know I never had a single sympathy pain when Ann had the baby. <laughs> just being honest, don't want to make myself into anything I wasn't. But that's what I'm trying to say is I wonder if when Jesus was pierced, if Mary didn't feel the pain, if that's what maybe Simeon meant when he said, You're, you'll be pierced through with a sword. Sisters, when you say God, yes to God in motherhood, and let me just let me make some motherhood applications, you, you are saying yes, most likely to some pain and sacrifice in the years to come. I mean, Micah did such a good job with that 
trellis from, uh, you know, talking about the pain of pruning and being a mother and what it costs you to be a mother. So yeah, there's that kind of sacrifice, but there's, there's other kind of pains that can come along with your sacrifice as well. I, I did read this. I'm assuming it's a true story, but a young teenager didn't want to be seen with her mom because her mom's arms were terribly disfigured. And she was just a teenager, right? And she just didn't like that. Didn't like the way she, it embarrassed her that her mom's arms were so bad. And in this particular day, they were going to the shopping and, and her mom reached out. And the clerk, you could tell, was just kind of taken back by the woman's arms. And when they got home, the little girl started crying and said, Mom, it's just so embarrassing. And of course, her mom was really, really hurt. But she waited an hour or so. And then she comes in and she tells her daughter something she's never told her. And she says, when you were a baby, I woke up to a burning house. Your room was on fire. Flames were everywhere. I couldn't leave you there to die. So I ran through the fire, wrapped my arms around you. And then I went back through the flames, my arms on fire. And I got outside on the lawn. The pain was agonizing, but I looked at you. And all I could do was cry because the flames hadn't touched you. So it stunned the little girl, looked at her mom through new eyes, weeping in shame, gratitude. She kissed her mom's marred hands and arms. So it's, it's funny, isn't it, what truth will do to us what, when we know, uh, know some things that we don't necessarily know. But my point is that, ladies, you'd be willing to lay down your lives for your children. You'd be willing to sacrifice for your children. Mary illustrates for us that obedience to God I mean, it's, it can be painful sometimes. It can be painful. And it's not just for your moms, men, young men, old men, women, young, children, young, young people, Keegan's age, you guys' age. You know, following Jesus, it, it can be really painful. And I'm, I'm just telling you that's the case. Mary was 15 years old, and she said, Lord, I'm your servant. Do to me whatever you're willing to do. And then let me get to the last one. And then and then the last point, the last thing I want to say from Mary's life and to challenge us with is that faith is the victory. And here's what I mean by that. One thing I've, I've made this point that I think what stands out in Mary's life is her faith in God and consequently her faith in her son, Jesus. Now, granted, Mary had something that most of us don't have. She had an angelic visit to boost her faith. She had faith encouragements along the way. She had the shepherds coming out of the fields, being directed there by angels. She had the magi coming from the east to bow down before her baby. She had Simeon in the, in the, um, she had Simeon in, in the temple and then Anna in the temple. But listen to this. After that, as best we know, she didn't have another supernatural encouragement. You follow me, what I'm saying there? I mean, we, we want to think, oh, well, yeah, it's easy for Mary. Look at all the things that happened to her. Well, they happened early on, but then we don't really have any of those other things really happening. I guess you could say Jesus at 12 years old and everybody listening to him teach, that'd probably be a, a substantiator of her faith. But, but, but here's the thing. Jesus starts his, his, his ministry, and, and then Mary... Mary is convinced that Jesus can fix the wine problem and she's not willing to take a no for an answer. And here's my point is, you know, God does all kinds of things in our life and we're filled with faith. And I mean, it's just bubbling over. and We're just so filled with faith. But you know, as time goes on, time goes on and it, it sort of begins to beat our faith down and we begin to wonder, well, man, is this really true? Should I really put my faith in Jesus? Should I really walk after Jesus? 
Mary is a template to us in that Mary never gave up her faith. And she walked in faith all the way and faithfulness to the end. And so brothers and sisters, I'd like to just challenge you and encourage you to be like Mary and to walk in faith. Never abandon your faith. Never give up your faith. Never let go of your faith. Jesus, when he taught, this is what he says in Matthew 24, 13. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. And if you go back and look at the context, I think the context of that is the one who perseveres in faith. The one who continues in faithfulness will be saved. Death is coming to all of us. You're going to die. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus, by his death, will rescue you and rescue you unto life if you remain in faith. And if you don't remain in faith, he will not rescue you. Not everyone who begins in faith continues in faith. I know for us Baptists, once saved, always saved. I'm not even trying to argue that point. I'm simply trying to say, not everyone who begins in faith stays in faith. They don't. Paul encouraged Timothy to fight the good fight. Don't forget this. He's encouraging Timothy. Timothy, fight the good fight. You know why he says fight the good fight of faith? He says because it's really possible for you to make shipwreck of your faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander. Timothy, fight the fight. Fight the fight of faith. Don't give up because you can lose. You can can make shipwreck of your faith. Our faith can falter at times. It happened to John the Baptist. Remember that? He's in prison. He sends message to Jesus. He says, really, are you the one? His faith is faltering doesn't fail, but it is, he's stumbling a little bit. Jesus says, blessed is the one who doesn't stumble over me. Thomas seems to have some doubting going on there, some stumbling in his faith, because he says, man, I'm not going to believe until I touch Jesus. And uh, both he and John would eventually be given sensory evidence to bolster their faith. But Jesus would say to Thomas in particular, blessed are those who are not going to have the sensory help the, the touching help, the seeing with their eyes help that, that you see. Faltering faith isn't sin, but be like Mary. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't, don't give up. Faith isn't feelings. Faith is confidence. Faith is conviction. Root your faith in Jesus and don't be moved. Don't be moved when, when you're bombarded and your faith is faltering. Hold on to Jesus. Every man and woman puts their faith in something. Listen to what I'm saying. Every man or woman puts their faith in something. I'm challenging you to put your faith in Jesus. They put their, we all put our faith in something that directs and drives our life. Every one of us does. I mean, the atheist does too, right? He's putting his faith in there is no God. He's the only God in his life and that drives his life. He's putting faith in something that is a conviction for him. We all put faith in something that drives and directs our lives. Do you remember when Jesus um, fed the 5,000 and then he crosses the sea and and when he gets over there, everybody's looking for food. And he says, I'm not giving you any food. You're just looking for me for the food. And then he makes these really hard statements. I'm sure you remember the exchange. The hard statements are, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part of me. And they were like, whoa, you know, that's really, that's really bad. I mean, I, you know, and, the, and the Bible says that many of his disciples left him. They said, man, this stuff's too hard. I mean, they're taking him literally. They're not understanding his metaphor. But here's, my, here's the thing I want you to see about that. They leave, 
And then Jesus turns to the 12. And this is what he says to the 12. He says, are you going to leave too? Do you remember what they said? And Peter answers for all. Do you remember what he says to them? Anybody? He says, no, we're not leaving. You remember why he said they're not leaving? He said this, because no one else has the words of life. No, no one else. Here, here's what I think Peter was saying. You know, nothing in this life makes sense but you. And we're not leaving you because there's nothing else to go to but you. You're, you're what makes sense of life. Here's what I want you to understand about Mary. Mary understood that nothing made sense in her life other than Jesus, her son, was the son of God and that he had died and risen for her. And she held on to her faith. She fought for her faith. I say to all of us this morning, when people are deconstructing their faith and they're losing their faith and they're relinquishing their faith and they're working to let go of their faith, I'm saying to you, hold on to your faith. Reaffirm it. Persevere in it. You can't please God without it. So trust him. Seek him. And love him. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.